as we look to our Lord now in prayer. So, our Father, we're thanking you for being our God, hearing John speak a few minutes ago about the service for his father, the McDonald's father, over the course of these past days. Our hearts go out to each and every one of the extended family, and it's special people found in all the various services this morning. Each distinctly, uniquely made by you. Thanking you, Father, for their father, their grandfather's legacy, and I pray for Paula at this time that you will minister to her at her point of need. Pour your spirit upon them all. We see so much of this unfolding as we look carefully into the book of Job. We're asking for greater and greater insight the way we minister to others. As we consider, Father, what he went through, and then how we can take what's here to counsel and guide people more effectively in light of what we learn from your word. So, Father, through the three services and the live streaming this morning, we thank you for those watching in. We're asking now that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, you would shape these wills. As once again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was struck by the closing argument of To Kill a Mockingbird where Atticus Finch now, he looks at the jury and he looks at the judge and states, I am no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It's a living, working reality. But a court is no better than each man of you sitting on this jury. It was all men in this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury, and a jury is only as sound as the men who made it up. He concludes, I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard. Come to a decision and restore this defendant in the name of God. Do your duty. What is fascinating to us is the way in which what unfolds here in this 31st chapter is in essence how Job as his own defense attorney is pleading for God now to do his duty. As the cosmic spectators are looking in, and as the evil one is wondering now in this final summation, will Job curse God and die? You can almost see everybody leaning forward as now last words are being uttered. <coughs> what do you do with this? What I want to do with you is to put ourselves once again now in the second of the three services 
in the situation where we are ministering to, we're counseling, we're guiding people who've experienced loss. They're hurting people. Might be a loss physically, it might be a loss relationally, might be a loss due to job, but one thing they share in common is a sense of loss. What do you look for? What do you say? What are the discerning factors that have to be brought out to minister effectively? What I want to do with you is to consider Job's closing argument, his final words, his last statement, and draw three what I consider to be significant emphases found in verse 16 all the way through the end of the chapter. Now the first we're going to put like this is you and I, as we counsel hurting people, I want you to weigh with me their last words. Get a sense of the gravity of it all. Why? As they recount how the needs of others have been met. Now, Job's going to talk about the way in which he's met the needs of others. And so often, the person who's counseling, someone who has experienced loss, the counselor, he himself, has experienced loss. The counselor, she herself, has experienced loss. How do you go about ministering to others when you yourself wouldn't mind someone ministering to you? Well, now, Job is ministering through these words to all people of all ages. And his words of counsel are such that cause you and me to stop and think, but how could we have gone about counseling Job and coming alongside him at his own ash heap of misery? Notice how he begins at this point. There's a litany of ways in which he's met the needs of others, but Job, who's meeting your needs? When he says, if I have, another one of the if I have, 16 in this chapter. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, why does he bring that up? Because Eliphaz, one of the three supposed counselors, has challenged Job that you have been indifferent towards those who've experienced loss of income. And Job is now refuting that argument. They believe that this is the reason, one of the reasons why Job is suffering. And Job is saying, no, this is not the reason why I'm suffering if I have withheld anything that the poor have desired. And then notice what he says next. Or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. You can almost pause at that point as you think about how he himself has experienced family loss, relational loss. Standing in line in the cafeteria at Wheaton College back in my college days and had just finished a ball game and I knew that I had to get back to the lab chemistry experiments later in the evening. Wanted to grab a quick bite. As I'm standing there, um, Valerie is standing nearby and I look off in the distance and Valerie's mother is in the cafeteria. Valerie is Valerie Elliott and her mother is Elizabeth Elliott. And so I knew that Elizabeth Elliot wanted to join us for a bit of a meal before we, we carried on with the rest of the responsibilities for the day. And so I turned to Val and I said, uh, how, do I, how do I minister to your mom? 
she has been widowed not once, but twice at that point, though I knew that she was engaged to be married to a man. Boy, that man takes risks, doesn't he, now that I think about it. And I told Elizabeth that, and that's what Vale told me to do, make my mother laugh. And she did. But there's something that stood out to me in her incredibly wise book, Loneliness. Fifteen years later, I am a widow again, she had written. Most of my tears were shed before he died as I watched cancer take him to pieces. The funeral. It's a celebration of joy. He's at peace, free at last from what he called his vile body. On we sing, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. In that wonderful line, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Elizabeth Elliot goes on to write, I do not feel at all like crying, except for joy at the thought of Christ being the death of death. I did not cry at the memorial service for my first husband. It seemed very strange to the onlookers, I'm sure. Quote, she must be made of concrete, unquote. But I am not the only one who's experienced this. It often happens that those whose loss is greatest receive the greatest share of grace, mercy, and peace. This does not mean that they never cry, of course, but they do not collapse. Those who only watch and pray and try to put themselves in the place of the bereaved find it almost unendurable. Sometimes they weep uncontrollably, for their imaginations never include grace. By the way, does your imagination include grace? And so it happens to me at the funeral. The peace given simply passes understanding. I'm borne up by those intense prayers as if on strong wings, far above grief. But, but suddenly, one day, I am pulling something from the shelf in the supermarket. The tide sweeps in and I find myself sobbing. Now nobody seems to notice. And if someone should, would my explanation, quote, my husband died three months ago, make sense to him here in the supermarket? What triggered the emotions? She was pulling down a cereal box of the kind of cereal that her husband would eat for breakfast. So, But she made a connection in her mind and her heart, and the result was the emotions were being displayed. Now, the jobs of this world want you and me to understand that sometimes the onlooker can't necessarily make immediate connections. But there is an underlying loss. And that underlying loss may not be visible or immediately apparent to those around them, but they make a connection like pulling down a cereal box. And then the display of emotion leaves you wondering, why? Is the cereal that bad? No. It stirs an emotion based upon the making of a connection 
that requires you and me, if we're going to minister effectively, to make connections between the past and the present, between the inner and the outer, so that we are more effective in doing what we do, so that as a congregation, we can be a cutting edge of ministering to those who've experienced such loss. And that's why this morning, uh, I texted my youngest son and daughter-in-law, congratulations on their one-year anniversary today. And I then texted my sister right before first service, and I thanked her for the way she cared for our mother, because today is the one-year anniversary of my mother going home to be with the Lord. And so you have to ponder these things. And Job 31 was the way it ministered to my heart this week, is you make the connections... And you keep on keeping on as you seek to serve the Lord and live for God in his glory. And so here's Job now at this point, and he's pondering loss all around him. Well, the poor, they have lost their material matters. Um, the widow, she has lost her husband. He goes on to say, I have eaten my morsel alone as if he's indifferent. The fatherless has not eaten of it. Where from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. So now notice his tremendous sense of an understanding, particularly a burden for those who are the fatherless. For example, verse 21, another if. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, let my arm be broken from its socket. So he's still conscious of loss. So what you and I have to do, if we're going to be very effective in the way in which we minister in this fallen world, we gain a sense of the loss and the gains of life, and we ask, now how can I tailor what I say and what I say to the needs of the moment? Rich and Patty White understood. They traveled to a third world country to adopt a little girl named Alona. And after two years of effort and paperwork, the whites stood before a judge, another land, who read words from this official document and grit your teeth. Inasmuch as Alona is orphaned and unwanted by any family in this country, inasmuch as no citizen of this country wishes to have Alona, but when the recitation was concluded, which gave the whites custody of Alona, Here's what they did as they managed the moment biblically for God's glory. They dropped to their knees, hugged their new daughter, and promised, quote, You will never have to hear the word unwanted spoken again. And when they arrived back home in Tennessee, they changed their daughter's name from Alona to Hope, the writer tells us, you and I are unwanted orphans in a hostile universe. Dearly loved, sought after, and claimed. If we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're God's children. We have been given Christ's name as our own. We are secure because of him. And on the authority of Jesus, we rest in confidence that we are more precious than we ever dreamed of. Well put. And so now what we have to do is to talk to those who've experienced the losses of life 
gain insight from the way in which Job, for example, alerts us to these things. But what he wants you and me to do is to weigh carefully what you and I would consider to be closing arguments, last words. So when you're parting company with a family member or parting company with friends, what was said last? Was it trivial? Or maybe it just sounded trivial to you, but maybe it was highly significant to them. But when we counsel hurting people, you weigh their last words. As first of all, out of 16 through 23, they've recounted how the needs of others have been met. But are they subtly saying, as they recount how the needs of others have been met, but I've got some unmet needs. Is that an underlying issue here for Job in his summary? No. You're a wise counselor. You're making connections between past and present, between the internals and the externals. But now you're ready then to waste something more, a second emphasis. That as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, we weigh their last words, second of all, as they review how the management of resources has been honorable. How they've sought to honor God with their resources. Now, another one of the attacks against Job throughout the book of Job has been that he did not use his wealth to meet the needs of others. Now, in his closing argument, this is why he still uses another if. Count them up. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand found much, pause again. What he's saying is that I understand that much had been entrusted to me. What I had to ponder is, do I trust God or do I trust my resources? Have I substituted my resources for God? That means then, you and I have got to ask ourselves, do we view ourselves as the owners of the resources? Or are we the managers of the resources that God owns? How we answer that question will determine to what degree we impact others. We'll hold a tight grip if we're the owners but we'll hold a loose grip if we're the managers because God's got the tight grip. He simply wants us to use his resources as a means by which others are ministered to in a way that brings glory to God's name and ministers to their own particular situation at this particular point in their life experience. So now we ask ourselves, how do I go about doing that? What is it that God wants me to do in this particular case? to make a difference in the lives of other people. Stephen Olford, in one of his volumes, tells the story from the past. I think illustrates it well. Some of us might know this story, recall this story. It was a 19th century king of Prussia, Frederick William III. Country's in big trouble. He's carrying on an expensive war. He's seeking to strengthen the country make a great nation of the Prussian people, but he does not have enough money to finance the projects. He knew he couldn't disappoint the people. He knew he had to protect the people. 
So after careful reflection, the writer tells us, he decided to approach the women of Prussia and ask them to bring their gold and silver jewelry to be melted down, made into money for their country. And he resolved that for each gold or silver ornament, he would give an exchange, give in exchange a bronze or iron decoration as a token of his gratitude. And each decoration would bear this inscription, quote, I gave gold for iron, comma, 1813, unquote. The writer tells us the response was overwhelming. And what was even more important was that these women prized their gifts from the king more highly than their former possessions. Now, you pull that back to what Job has now said in verse 24. If I've made gold my trust, or fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, he's forcing now those around him to think about the fact that now needs to be considered. Job has met the needs of other people. And when you view yourself as a manager, you have the opportunity then to release the grip of what God owns, because he's got his grip tight, and then impact others in a way that otherwise would not be impacted, all for God's glory. And you do that, and you're ready then for your third of the three emphases. Because that comes down, beginning with uh, what we'll find in verse 29 through 40. The thirdly, as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, you want to weigh their last words. In other words, their closing arguments. As thirdly, they reinforce, they reinforce how to access, how the access to God is so critical in their own personal experience. In other words, to put it simply, do they feel as though they're getting a hearing? Is God paying attention? Is God indifferent? Or is God involved? That's the question they might be asking. And you might be the difference maker as to whether or not they will view God as being indifferent or God as being involved. But God is so involved that he gave us the story of the book of Job. And God is so involved in Job's life that he has allowed for hands off for a period of time on Job's experience, so that Job can witness to the entire cosmos, I'm, my faith has not been bought. I don't put my faith in my resources. I put my faith in my God. So now you look back at the way in which Job has grappled with his access to God. For example, look at the screen, ponder what appears in Job chapter 9 verse 33. Because there he had cried out, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. In other words, he needs someone who's both human and divine to connect Job to God. But who can that be? But then he inched forward in his arguments. And he took us to Job chapter 16. And in Job chapter 16... You and I found in verse 19, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. 
So now he knows that somebody's interceding for him. The whole idea is, but God, is God intervening for me as someone is interceding for me? But then the capstone of his testimony in the book of Job was in chapter 19. We're in verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin's been destroyed, thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Notice the certainty of it all. Now, that tells me that this man has hope. And when you and I are ministering to people who are hurting, closely tied to the issue of hurt is the issue of hope. Can we infuse a new sense of hope into the heart of the one who hurts? This is where biblical counseling is at cutting edge. When you can give them a realistic view that there's a tomorrow. And that you have a God who is graciously involved in your tomorrow. So now Job has had to wrestle with this. And so now back to Job 31. And I want you to take your thought processes and go to the very heart of the appeal for the sake of time. Verse 35. Because now, what Job's about to say is not once, but twice, oh, the big exhale. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Is he indifferent? No. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. I'm waiting for an answer. Are you this morning? Could sure use an answer. Another awe. Oh. That I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, tell me why I'm going through what I'm going through. Now, you and I know because we've read chapters 1 and 2. But you see, Job hasn't. And so he's, he's working with less than full information. And generally what you and I find when we're dealing with hurting people is we're having to minister to those who lack full information. He then says, Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. But how do you approach the sovereign one? Is the question of the hour. Notice that Job does not refer to him as Lord, as Yahweh, but rather as Almighty there seems to be a bit of distance there, doesn't there? What do we do with that distance? Civil War. Soldier in the Union Army. Youngest son has lost his older brother and his father in the war. Goes to Washington to see President Lincoln. Asking for an exemption from military service so he can go back, help his sister, mother with the farm. And when he arrives in Washington, having received a furlough from the military to go and, and plead his case, consider the courtroom concept. He goes to the White House, approaches the door, hoping to meet with the president, only to be told, you can't see the president. Don't you know there's a war going on? He's a busy man. Now go away. And so he left, we're told, disheartened. He's sitting on a park bench not far away when a little boy approaches him, and the boy says, Soldier, you look unhappy. What's wrong? 
Well, the soldier looks at the young boy and begins to spill his heart to the young boy about the situation, about his father having died in the war, his older brother having died in the war, and how he was the only male left in the family, and he was needed desperately back at the farm for the spring planting. And so the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would put it. The little boy took the soldier by the hand, led him around the back of the White House. They went through the back door, past the guards, went past all the generals and the high-ranking government officials. And they all stood at attention as this little boy took this private through the rooms of the White House. And the private didn't understand. But finally they got to the presidential office itself. The little boy didn't knock on the door, just opened the door, walked in, and there President Lincoln sat, studying battle plans on his desk. And President Lincoln looked up and said, What can I do for you, Ted? That's Ted Lincoln, fourth child in the Lincoln family. Ted pled the case for the soldier, and the soldier went home to the farm. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so you have an approach, you have an access, and it's found in that living Redeemer and that Job claimed. And that's why now you can connect the dots of an Atticus Finch who says, I am confident that you, gentlemen, will review without passion the evidence you've heard. Come to a decision and restore this defendant in the name of God. Do your duty. And in the name of God, Jesus did his duty, and died for our sins. Let's stand together. So, Father, chances are people are this morning counseling, guiding, ministering to others who are hurting, when in reality, the counselor, the one who is offering guidance, is hurting. And what we have is this incredible congregation that understands grace. How we continue to pour grace into the holes of humanity. And hoping, Father, to be able to find ways to be able to minister points of need. So, Father, at any point in any of these services, including the live stream today, if there are those, Father, that are being positioned by you right now to make a difference in the lives of others, Help us as we, week by week, have taken the principles of biblical counseling from the book of Job, relate them practically to the experiences you put us in, and make a difference in the lives of others. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.